actually, I'm just going to pause and look one thing up on the internet, if that's all right. On the internet? Yes. Disgusting. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 69th episode of Octothorpe. Nice. But this episode is coming to you on the 27th of October 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And I don't know these people. And that was the best, the best interruption you've ever done in the history of the pod. This is a unusual episode of Octthorpe because uh, we can't record this week, listeners. And so you're going to get some audio of me, Alison and Christopher J. Garcia chatting in the fanzine lounge at Tricon 8. And we're also going to talk about Hugo stats because Hugo stats are timeless. Liz, as our chief statistician in chief, has read the Hugo stats. Yep, every single word. No, that's a lie. Haven't you? I mean, I've skimmed every single word. I haven't read like every single column of EPH votes for, you know, best short story or anything like that. (laughs) But helpfully, Nicholas White and his team who did the Hugo Stats document have in fact put some helpful notes on about things that might be of interest on some of the pages. So, and uh, put some very interesting final charts in there. So thank you very much, Nicholas and Kat. I understand this was a joint effort between Nicholas White and Cat Jones. So they argued quite a lot about which things should be included and eventually included both of both of their favourites. So that's why it's so long this year. We appreciate your efforts, guys. So I think one thing that I thought would be interesting to look at is E Pluribus Hugo. This year the business meeting confirmed E Pluribus Hugo as the nomination counting system for the foreseeable future, unless the business meeting decides to change that. So I thought it would be interesting to see where this actually made any difference. Either EPRIS would make a difference or just the top six within the top six number of nominations were the top six nominees. And I think it made a difference in four categories. Possibly the most significant of these is in Best Novella, where Adrian Tchaikovsky's Elder Race was actually... Oh, uh, I've got to count. It's one, two, three, four, five. It was actually ninth in number of nominations, if you just counted by number. Ooh. But it got on the ballot because the top nominee um, was by Martha Wells, and she declined to take the nomination. And then Elder Race uh, beat out another Catherine Valente novella, as well as actually a Nedia Corafor novella, which both had more kind of nominee nomination, but on EPH. Uh, elder race won out which is quite interesting uh but i mean it's kind of predictable that if you nominated one catherine valente novella you might have also liked another catherine valente novella so i think you can see there where um eph has helped adrian tchaikovsky who might have a slightly different set of voters um get onto the ballot so this is actually i think it might have crystallized something i already thought but i didn't know i thought if that makes any sense which is that E Pluribus Hugo may well mean that especially as the Worldcon attracts more diverse groups of fans in terms of nationality, E Pluribus Hugo might make sure that like any given block of one nationality gets a nomination onto the ballot. And so it might be that sort of if Adrian Tchaikovsky leads in terms of like the people voting and nominating in the UK, he gets on the ballot and that reduces how many of the people on the ballot are 
American authors because obviously the American pool will be bigger, but from the EPH perspective, it will look like slate voting. And so that's really interesting and might actually make the Hugo Awards much more international over time, especially as we see other communities come in, which is, I think, perhaps really, really, really positive. One thing that somebody who probably doesn't want their name attached to this quote on a podcast said is that you are correct that E Pluribus Hugo does tend to favour people with smaller minority groups of voters and therefore makes the Hugo final ballot more diverse. But the effect this is having is that it's getting white men onto the ballot because in the context of the major block of Hugo voters now, they're the minority. And I thought that was very weird and strange, but this is an example of where it happened. And as Elder Race was, in fact, my favourite of the novellas, I'm quite glad to see that. Because there hasn't been a male winner of one of the big four since 2016, 2017? which is obviously like really positive in many ways, but does mean that at the moment, a lot of these mechanisms to try and make sure that the less recognised get onto the ballot might be working in the opposite way to how you might expect them to. I think that says a lot about how strong the Hugo is as, a, as an award at the moment. Well, you could say Elder Race actually came in second, so it clearly was a popular finalist. Well, and that's the other thing, right? Like, I think it would have been a weaker ballot without Elder Race on it. And I think that was the argument because I think last year, one of the EPH, one of the finalists that got onto the ballot because of EPH ended up winning that category. And my argument last year, I think, was if EPH is putting the eventual winner onto the ballot, EPH is clearly acting for the good of the award. Elsa, Sjönesson? Sjönesson, yeah. Who I met at Wilcom for the first time. And was obviously very deserving. So hurrah. So that's good, good knowledge, Liz. Thank you. What else did EPH do? Um, so it made a difference in FanWriter, where if we just took the straight uh, nomination count, we would have had uh, Alistair Stewart instead of Bitter Corella. Great to have Bitter Corella. And also they were very, very thrilled. And yeah, I think in that case, it, it kind of got as a first time nominee, first time finalist onto the ballot. And also I do think it's just one of the things where, you know, Bitter Corella was writing a very different style of thing than Alistair Stewart writes. So you can kind of see how people may have voted for this, you know, similar types of fan writing that they like. And some people obviously voted in a slightly different way, a slightly different constituency, and it got on there. The other place it made a difference is there would have been a tie for sixth place, would have tied for fifth and sixth place, actually a three-way tie on fan artist. But actually... What happened is that Richard Mann had the lost out in EPH. And there I think that is a bit of a shame. Who got on instead? Well, no one got on instead. The thing is, I think because there was a three-way tie essentially for fifth, sixth and seventh on that ballot under a number of nominations. Oh. You know, they would have all three of them been on there. But because you can break ties with EPH, you end up with two of the people who were nominated by uh, 15 people getting on there and the third one not, which just feels a little bit harsh yeah no i can see that uh and then the last place it made a difference was best editor long form but let's just talk a little bit about best editor um long form so eph did make a difference in that i mean it's, it's hard to work out what would have happened without eph because there were five people who would have been finalists who informed the administrators well there were four people informed the administrators that they were not eligible in this category. And then Tony Weisskopf declined nomination as she has in the past. So essentially, 
the people who came third, sixth, seventh, and then tenth on the ballot were not actually eligible. And then, so when then, then when you remove them all, I find it quite difficult to work out what would be maybe going on with the EPH. But certainly, Nivia Evans got 13 nominations and went out under EPH. But Oliver Johnson, for instance, also had 13 people nominate them and was not on the ballot. I've also had a conversation with another finalist in this category where they had a conversation with the administrators to go, am I eligible in this category or not? And eventually, after some discussion, concluded that they were, and so is on the ballot. But this, I think, demonstrates that there are, this is an extremely problematic category. I think when it was created, I think people hoped that it would make the work of long-form editors and the process of long-form editing more visible to Hugo voters and to the community more generally, and I'm not sure that has worked. I mean, there's also the 25% threshold, which we haven't discussed much yet, but the business meeting has removed that, so it no longer counts. But uh, Best Edited Long Form was the closest to not being awarded under 25% rule. So you said that in Fan Writer, Bitter Carrera got on. Yeah. Um, You said that in Best Editor Long Form, Nivea Evans got on. In Novelettes... The Adrian Tchaikovsky, sorry, in novella, the Adrian Tchaikovsky got on. What was the, th- the fourth one, sorry? It was fan artist. It was fan artist, there was a tie. And in fact, in Best Editor, I think there would have been a tie. But <laughs> I find it a bit confusing because there's somebody missing. EPH got two black women on, took one white man off and put one white man on. So I think in balance, Alison's point about EPH favouring white men is probably wrong. This is... This is um data over several years that had been crunched for for that quote not not just this year there is data over several years yeah i mean maybe it's for a future discussion but i mean it's not it's but it doesn't seem like an overwhelming effect indeed no but it's kind of like eph is only having small effects i mean it's having kind of effects here on only four categories and in some cases it complicates it's just breaking a tie for sixth position but as we said you know it remains out there as a deterrent Interestingly, last year Octothorpe would have Octothorpe was seventh under EPH, but only because of EPH we were quite a long way downstream without EPH. But this year we were in the top six even without EPH, so that was kind of interesting and kind of nice. So thank you everyone who nominated us. We we were second under EPH and we were third, I think, under yeah um, nominations, which is pretty good. But Liz, you were going to talk about the 25% rule and I uh, interrupted. So please go ahead. I mean, the 25% rule, I, you know, it, it has been removed. It will not um, be there in future. Really, I'm talking about best editor long form because I think a category in which people are nominating a bunch of people who are ineligible is a problem. I mean, you always get people, occasional person who's nominated who is ineligible, especially in things like fan artists and pro artists where they have to have done a qualifying piece of work. But there's a lot of people being nominated who, uh, you know, just inform the administrators that they're not eligible. So they're not declining it. They're really not eligible. It had the lowest number of votes in that category. So it was had 635 votes and you needed 559 to get 25%. So it was, it was well above, but it's still a low number. It also had kind of the lowest number of people nominating in that category, I think. 
Yeah, the finalist range was 12 to 44, which I think is lower than any of the... The lower end of that is lower than any of the other categories I can see on the finalist list. Yeah, and there's also a new um, table, thank you to Nicholas and Kat, saying how many nominations people made in each category. Um, And so you can see that actually only 33 people even nominated five editors in Best Editor Long Form. And the same is true in in Fan Writer, where that was low. But only 72 72 people nominated only one editor. So I think there is a real problem here in that people are not really nominating for this category. When they do nominate, they're nominating people who are ineligible because they don't have the information to know who is eligible. And then the number of people actually voting is low. So it's kind of doing quite poorly in all three categories. Well, and it is striking that 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 distribution is bimodal because you've got 72 people who nominate one and then you've got 34 people nominate two and then it goes down to 26 and then down to 17 by the time you're nominating four. And then there are 33 people who nominate five. So what that says to me is that most people know one or two editors. And then there is a group of people who know lots of editors. And the num- the sort of people who know quite a few editors, they're not really big. And so you presumably got incredibly, incredibly engaged people at one end and not so engaged people at the other. And actually, I hadn't noticed, but this repeats in most of the categories, which I find really interesting. And I'd never noticed before. It's fascinating. Yeah. They're all bimodal, basically. Yeah. I don't think we've ever had these. I don't think we've ever had these actual numbers before. But yeah, you get all these bimodal distributions. People either nominate one work or they nominate five works in a lot of categories. Yeah. No, it's really nice that. Really, really cool. Yes. Thanks to the people who put it together. On the subject of long form editor, the problem is obviously editors have a huge huge impact on the field and we should recognize that impact somehow because it is much more the 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 sort of the editors of science fiction are much more important especially to the hugo electorate than for instance podcasters and so like i do think there needs to be recognition of editors but i just i don't think this is how because like you say liz it's abundantly clear that people don't really know who's doing what work who's doing eligible work etc I'd much rather, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, I, I've always thought it'd be more sensible to just give the editor of things that win a Hugo as well as the author. There's probably problems with that, but like it seems to me a more elegant way of doing it. But certainly, I, I never vote in Best Editor Long Form because I have no idea what how you would judge. I, I never feel like I can give a informed opinion. And I don't know how... If you if you are listening and you do vote in Best Editor and you don't just vote for editors who took you to dinner one time, please let me know how you decide because I, I, would, I would be very interested to know how people do. Yeah, I've had an extra thought here as well on Best Editor Long Form. If you look at the Constitution, Best Editor Long Form is the editor of at least four novel-length works. That's quite a lot, isn't it? Yes, but the, the crucial thing is the person who came in third on nominations was Lee Harris, who is a senior editor at Tor.com. So he will be acquiring a lot of novellas. So that's the thing. Is possibly people have been looking at, you know, if you publish a lot of novellas, which are all published kind of as standalone books, then maybe people start to nominate you in long form when really they should be nominating you in short form. He also did quite well in short form, but that is a possibility. That is interesting. I feel like... There was a year when Lee came sixth in both and was eligible for both. Yeah. <laughs> and, we, you know, five things on the ballot and he was sixth in both categories. And I thought that was a bit hard. Yeah. 
So possibly in some years he is eligible in both categories, but it would be a shame if the fact that it's got to be novel length and a lot of these a lot of these novellas are quite long and because they're published as standalones, you might think they might be novels and it should go in long form, but your nomination should go in short form. I think I am right in saying, and I'm sure that uh, one of our listeners will write in if I am wrong in saying, but I believe I'm right in saying that if if a lot of people have nominated someone in the wrong category, their votes are moved to the right category. So I think if like 100 people nominate Lee Harris in long form editor and Lee Harris is actually eligible in short form editor, those 100 nomination would be moved. Gonna say that's works. I think that's works. I don't think if you get a load of votes in pro artists, but you're actually a fan artist, they're going to shift them. I think it's. I think that's only the case for works, that works get shifted around categories, but votes don't. Off to the Worcester Constitution, Liz. Uh, I, in fact, have it open right now because I was checking the wording of the editor category. No, 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 Liz, bat. Okay, so the committee shall move a nomination on an individual ballot from another category to the works default category only if the member has made fewer than five nominations in the final category. That doesn't say they can't. But work. Yeah, because the interesting thing is that Lee Harris got 33 nominations in in short form and 30 nominations in long form. And if you combine them, I mean, can't predict what the EBH effects would be, but that would have got him on the ballot in short form. This year he would have been he would have been eligible in both. My guess is there's some overlap there that the people who nominated him in long form will also have nominated him in short form. But anyway, Cat Jones, Nicholas White, if you're listening to this, please write in and tell us what you do for categories where it's not a work but a person. Do you shift them or not? Yeah. Inquiring minds want to know. Does the constitution does the constitution define work and person like very rigidly, or is it one of those things where there's a giant hole? <laughs> it's just a little hole, John. A waffer thin hole. Enough about holes. But yes, that is also very interesting. I do not want to be at the business meeting that tries to write a definition of person. Me neither. This is a live issue. In the artist arguments, there's a whole thing going on about um, corporations and whether they're eligible. So it's not, this isn't, this is a live issue. This isn't something that's just. Um... Yeah. Can I, can, can I nominate an AI as best fan artist? Oh, this is going to be a big issue for next year. So yeah, I, I, I've asked to be on Sarah Sarah Felix's committee, but I haven't heard anything yet. Listeners, if you could all please nominate Mid Journey in Best Pro Artist. Or Stable Diffusion or Dolly. It doesn't matter which one. I just picked one. The important thing is we nominate one with enough votes that it would get on the ballot. And then we have a precedent. And we all love a precedent. And I'm sure whoever is doing the Hugos next year will thank us for starting this campaign. In Chengdu. Who's, who's head of Wusfus Division? For Chengdu, no one knows. Um, I, mean, I think we do, but I think it's someone from China with a deputy from the US. Do you suppose they listen? I think it's Dave McCarty. Oh, Dave McCarty! So if you know Dave McCarty, tell him that that we, the fix <laughs> is in for AI artists. Tell him that John put the fix in for AI artists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it is spectacularly funny, but probably not. It's it's funny to me because I'm not an artist. I suspect it's not so much funny if you are an artist. So no, I'm an artist and I think it's pretty fucking funny. <laughs> you think it's funny? Okay. Well, and also I will say 
that if the precedent came out that mid-journey got on the ballot i would be fucking outraged (laughs) so there is that (laughs) i was very much hoping that the people who made this decision would be rightons and not wrongons but but it's a tool right you're a tool all of these things are tools that artists use good interruption john (laughs) (laughs) i'm so sorry uh that's but the hugo hugo committee is Zhenyu Zhang and Dave McCarty for 2023. Do you want one more little bit of Hugo stats? Yes, Liz. Obviously, we want one more little bit of Hugo stats. All the Hugo stats. I went and looked for categories in which single transferable vote makes a difference. Yep. So essentially, in what categories does the person with the most first the most first preferences on the first round not win? And there are three. Oh, interesting. So one of these is best related work. So basically, being seen by Elsa Shunison had the most first preferences. And it's not until quite late on in the vote dis- redistribution that the votes go to Never Say You Can't Survive by Charlie Jane Anders, which one? So that's one case. Um, and the other cases, again, are the editor categories, where Neil Clark does not take the lead in best editor short from, from uh, Organitovmi Donald Pecky until the third round. And again, in Best Editor Long Form, it's not until the third round that Roxy Chen takes lead from Navawolf. So those are the three categories in which I saw the, the lead shift, but it only ever shifts from the person with the second most first preferences to the, the, the ending up with the most at the end, basically. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm going to say performing as expected there. That's doing what we want it to do. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's just it's interesting to me that actually it doesn't make as as big a difference. Like there are is generally like a front runner or even only two front runners and one of them wins out. It's not that people are, you know, putting their first preferences to something which ends up coming in fifth and has no chance of winning a lot of the time that are, without having the single transferable vote. I guess people would not vote the same under ST if it wasn't under STV, so it's hard to predict, but yeah. The reason you have STV is that without it, you get weird anomalies caused by first past the post systems. Yeah. So, so you want to have it to prevent to prevent voting anomalies rather than to get the right result. I don't. I don't think there's a right result in awards. That is not what you said in the pub last time we discussed awards. <laughs> no, but it would be interesting in something which had very few first preferences. You know, when people had a choice of all the options, ended up winning. Yarp. You know, basically it would indicate it was sort of everyone's second, third, fourth preference. It seems to be a lot of things people put down as first preference. For instance, uh, Way With Children series by Sean McGuire, which won on the first round, it had 476 first preference votes, which was about 220 ahead of anyone else. Interesting. Thank you very much, Liz. And that ends Hugo Stats Corner for now. And listeners, if your podcast app supports Chapter Arts, there will be a graph. And if it doesn't, there will be a graph in the show notes. And the graph is the bimodal distribution I got very excited about earlier. (laughs) You've already done it. (laughs) It's a graph. The work will be to make it in Matplotlib and make it actually look good. This is a very quick and dirty numbers graph. But it is really interesting. You're going to do an elegant graph. I normalised it by number of um, ballots that had one nomination. I I love that both my co-hosts are really into analyzing large data sets professionally yeah but you can see that like it is bimodal but it's really interesting in novel that there's almost twice as many ballots that nominate 
five as there are that nominate one. So most people, the mode is that people nominate five novels, which is interesting. And then the one where the bimodal distribution is least apparent, I think, is Lodestar. But this is going to be part of making this nicer, is that the colour key is not diff- it is very difficult. No, sorry, best fan artist. Best fan artist. Yeah, because you've only used six colours and there's like 20 categories, so we might need to work on that. Best, best podcast is not very bimodal. It's 154, 76, 57, 25, 71. So it, it just is low in four. Most people who nominate four, and this is true in most categories, most people who nominate four, you know, a lot more people nominate five because once you've, once you've nominated four, finding a fifth is often is not as hard as, as nominating your favourite thing and then finding a second. Well, it's percentages, isn't it? Finding twice as many is way harder than finding 25% as many. Well, 125% as many, I should say. Anyway, spinning off from the discussion of the Hugo statistics, uh, one of the things that happened at the business meeting at Tricon 8 was that the best interactive experience slash best game Hugo was passed. Uh, This is very good and has widely been accepted by everyone as a good move. Um, And it means that after it's ratified in Chengdu, you'll start to see best games appearing in these Hugo stats, which is very exciting. Congratulations to Ira Alexandra for getting it passed and for showing the exemplar of how you get stuff done in the business meeting, which is you spend five years debating it, hashing out the details and everything outside the Worldcon in people's leisure time. And then at the Worldcon, you spend literally two minutes being like, well, we all think this is a good idea, don't we? And winning 70 votes to 15. That is how all business meeting amendments should be done. Imho. But very good news in this particular case. I love that I was like, I really, really want to congratulate Ira. And then John said everything I was going to say. Sorry. It's really good. It is amazing. We're very, very pleased for Ira and for everyone who's done so much work on making Best Game happen. And yeah, we have a new Hugo. Hopefully that won't happen too often because I think people are like, oh, here's eight more Hugos we could have. And no, don't do that. This is the last new Hugo. Yep. It's It's finished. Yeah, we're pulling up the drawbridge now, guys. If you want another Hugo, you have to you have to overtake games as the largest part of the genre, and then we'll have a think about it. That would be a really. How would you put that in the constitution? You, the last the last added category, you have to demonstrate that you're better than that one, and then you get on. We need some kind of uh, Hugo Thunderdome. Thunder Hugome. There's got to be a pun in here somewhere. One in, one out. In order to get a new Hugo, you have to recommend one for actual slaughtering. I do think, like, generally speaking, I, I, I mean, because I am in general opposed to Hugo proliferation, because, uh, like, I don't want there to be infinite Hugos, but I, I am very strongly in favour of this particular Hugo, uh, and I do, I'm very, very excited that it is on. Especially after it had such a great showing when we did the trial Hugo, which I think just went really, really well. It's true. I'm usually like, no more Hugos, too many Hugos, no more Hugos. And, and then I'm like, oh, but we could have best game. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe one more Hugo. Maybe a Waffa Thin Hugo. <laughs> Waffa Thin. Yeah. Is it that the category gets added when it's ratified or is it added now for Chengdu? So it is going to be the first one's going to be in Glasgow. Okay. So UK Video Game Studios, this is your chance to... Yep. But also, listeners, listeners, please write in with the games that are scheduled for release in 2023 that we should be playing. That would be very good for a future episode, I think. 
that was the Octothought podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. Hello, everyone. It is the the Friday, I'm reliably informed. Allegedly, it is the Friday of World Cup. And I have a question for you. I have not previously heard the British expression hanging out my arse. How? How had you not heard that? I hadn't. I had to look it up on the internet. I knew what it meant from context. Fair enough. We are here with Hugo Award-winning fanzine editor and all about man about town. Man with a beard, man with a mask, man with a plan, Mexican wrestler, Christopher J. Garcia. That's so reductive of all the things that I do. But I admit uh, the most important of them is human being. The most important thing you've ever done is the hard copy podcast. That's correct. Actually, which we brought up at our podcasting panel. Yeah. And is coming back next year because I finally got another tape deck. Hey. (laughs) Okay, so I have to have, I have to have tapes, please. You will have tapes. There is no question. Yeah, so when you get me tapes, can you do me an MP3, please? Yeah, so last time Chris did hard copy podcast, I immediately ripped them all to my computer. I don't know if I can still do that. I got, I used to get hard copy podcasts from Jim Mowat, Jim Tarkin. Yep. Yeah, because he did a couple, I think. And apparently in the 50s, fans did this all the time. They sent audio tapes mm-hmm. around. Yep, audio tape, audio recording of material happened at a lot of world cons because lugging around the reporters would have been insane. Um, but they're also from 46, 47. Someone has wire recordings of panels from the WorldCon. That's cool. And that's in, the one that it survives is insane because it's basically made out of uh, wire made out of a combination of toilet paper and dreams. You know, audio recording and fandom goes way, way back, including there was a group that did something more along the lines of an APA, uh, Amateur Press Association, that uh, would pass around these tapes and then they would put your own with them and would go around a round table. I cannot remember what they called it. Um, I'm going to say tape thingy. And uh, those, some of those exist. I would have called it tapper. Leave this pause in because it's important. Chris is staring deeply into my soul with the expression that only a father can have. <laughs> Um, I hadn't realised he was your dad. How? How would you not realise that? Yes. The resemblance is uncanny. Yes. Uncanny. Now, you were in the room where famous community body, the Hugo Awards Study Committee, was abolished. Yes. Can you give us your live reaction? <laughs> Sorry, can I give you my live reaction? Were you in the room as well? No, I read it on Discord, but I have a live reaction from that. Oh, no. Oh, no, Okay. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you my reaction that this is literally exactly what it was. <laughs> as far as I can tell, the the ex-chair of the committee and a couple of the other committee members decided to fuck around and then they found, they found out. out. Yeah. I don't I've read the I've read live blogs of what happened and I'm like, I don't understand what they were trying to achieve. I think it was entirely predictable that what they did achieve was pissing the room off and yeah now it is no more well yes and i think one of the things we have studied 
the Hugos in multiple dimensions. Space, and time. time. Wine. Yep. Um, and what we have learned is uh, nothing. And <laughs> I think that is actually very important, that there may be nothing to the Hugos, and we may just have to be, keep going forward. Uh, except for we need an audio Hugo. Oh, no, surely. Oh, God. Uh -oh, My personal preference would be that we split rest dramatic presentation in a way that splits out an audio audio presentation mm -hmm. category. Yeah. But I don't know. I am broadly opposed to an audio category. I'm sorry, Chris. Yeah, and, well, and narrowly. But also, well, I think it's something that's at the very early stages of thinking about it. And it yeah. would need somebody in the community who cares quite a bit to do some actual work. And that's probably not me, for example. It's, and I've decided in 2024 it will be the one thing I do, um, is bringing that forward. I think we do need... We don't necessarily need the category now. I wish one of the world clowns we do now and then would take it on as their uh, discretionary Hugo. But uh, John is also completely wrong. Wrong, uh, as usual, because we do need a category because the number of podcasts in our space, if you count fiction, nonfiction, exceed the number of feature films in our space. Yet we have a category for feature films. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but the number of terrible fanfics about... Harry Potter exceeds the number of feature films. We don't have a category for terrible fanfics about Harry Potter. Best related work. Maybe you've heard of uh, Archive of Our Own. Uh, well, best related work can have all the audio in it as well, can't it? Theoretically? Maybe. <laughs> well, Should it? Sure. Will it? No. Anyway, so they've all listened to you go well, something. 20. In a year that was in the past, after Brandon Sanderson made a podcast with Mary Robinette and some other people who I temporarily forgotten, they won the best related work you go, I believe, twice. Um, in a year that began with 20. So, were you in the room where it happened when it happened? No, that's that's why I asked Chris for his reaction. You were in the room where it happened. I read. I Alex, was in the room where it happened. Because you left this fancy lounge with a mission to go and be in the room where it happened. Yes, and as I was in the room where it happened. And they didn't get to Ukraine. They didn't get to Ukraine. Because they were too busy pissing around with the Hugo Award Study Committee. Yeah, and. I don't, to be fair, I don't think they were going to solve Ukraine, so I don't really mind if. No, they would have solved. I. I guarantee you a resolution, non-binding, would have solved the entire Ukraine situation. Yeah, yeah. non-binding resolutions are, you know, as yeah. we know, a fine, fine... Yeah, a long history from the past to today. But I think, actually, it was a strange business meeting, even by business meetings. <laughs> it does sound weird. There was one point where someone rambled for like five minutes, and then someone said, so what are you actually saying? And her response was, I don't know. And me, Chuck Service, James Bacon, and Dave McCarty were all sitting in the back. Dave wails with laughter. <laughs> it's, well, we've it's all been there. I mean, especially on our Hugo Award-nominated podcasts, you start talking, you realize you don't know where you're going, and you're like, I don't think any of this had a point. Um, it's like life. The point of all things is the same. Pancakes. Oh, well, I'm, see, I'm not needed here. <laughs> Uh, by the way, let me say this actually to all the listeners of this. There are gluten-free pancakes available at Wild Berries. And I know this isn't an ad for better, best fiends or purple mattresses, but all podcasts need to have a plug. 
and Wildberries is the plug for this pub. Yeah, I love I think it's my favorite breakfast so far. Yeah. Just saying something. The breakfast here at the hotel is great too. I was shocked. Um, but Wildberries was so good. And sitting next to one of my favorite people on earth, the John the Rocket Coxon. Because he's gonna have a Hugo come this time Sunday night. That is the firstly no I won't. <laughs> and secondly, it's not night now. <laughs> It's night when I got that say it's night. <laughs> all right, all right, fair enough. Fair enough? No, fair enough. I, my favorite breakfast so far this week has been at Cafecito, which was amazing. Little Cuban place. And I had oh. a plantain omelette, which was gorgeous. Oh, plantains are my literally... And I also had a carafe of uh, Cuban espresso to myself. Oh. Which was enough coffee. <laughs> what? What? Yeah. Hold on. Wait I have not had more coffee since then. Your people found trade routes and able to get coffee. Yeah, and that I mean, was enough coffee for you? Yeah, yeah. Ooh. The princely sum of $4.95 plus tax. Your princes are not as well healed as they used to be, apparently. <laughs> that is reasonable. That yeah. is reasonable. No, Chicago food is fantastic. I haven't yet. We have the minor problem that we have. My wife is gluten-free, so I tend to eat gluten-free. But we are doing... Did you ask these guys to come in? Oh. No. Hello. Hello. I like your getup. So for the recording, Kevin and Andy have arrived. Kevin, the past Worldcom chair of San Jose in uh, 2018. And Andy, his husband. Who was mid-chair. Who was mid-chair and who is a man in his own right, damn it. dressed as a My Little Pony Pegasus. Yes, I'm dressed as Rainbow Dash. It's Rainbow Dash. And yes. I, that's very... Silly. <laughs> I think it's the word you are looking for. No, it's, it's very good. It is. It's very nice. It's bright and it's colorful. So I have a question because I saw I saw on whatever day it was I first bumped into you Wednesday, I guess, that you had redone your uh, mohawk uh, as as a rainbow. So was that for this cosplay or did you just fancy? No, it's for it was. I was toying with the idea in Dublin. All right. Uh, Dublin, I still had the zebra stripes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but it was too blustery to put the blade up. It was right, too yeah, wet yeah. and windy, so the without the, the bangs, the front of that forelock was platinum, so I could sponge in color, so that my bangs were a different color every day in Dublin. And the last couple of days, I actually striped the, that forelock as a rainbow, and I was toying with the idea of going to rainbow, and then I found this very silly Christmas ornament, <laughs> which featured a... Rainbow Mohawk Unicorn Mermaid. Excellent. Carrying a cosmopolitan. So how 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 did you get how did you commission that Christmas ornament? <laughs> I did not. I did buy it. And then I made the costume, which will be in the masquerade tomorrow. Hey, excellent. Excellent. I'm looking forward to the masquerade. So this is like a, I like an extra, extra bonus it's costume a bonus. for your masquerade. Bonus. So what's the, what's your best angle for this costume, darling? Um, probably about like this. Yeah, probably three quarters. Oh, there we go. You got to get the ass. This is exciting yeah. oh, audio content. Yeah, <laughs> Christopher. Yes. Have you heard of a fantasy called Journey Planet? You know. I have worked on at least two Journey Planets as time goes through. How do you respond to accusations that we have done more Octopops than you have done Journey Planets? They're not true. Um, they are true. They are true, actually. Yeah. Really? Yeah. As of yesterday. Well, yeah. No, we've only got 64. Yeah. We overtook yesterday. Yeah. 
we just we also had a discussion about this yesterday i'm pretty sure with chuck <laughs> and i think there's a recording of you and me and chuck discussing it so like i'm pretty sure that i can put yes. that before this yes and it'll be very funny so the yes i use like flashback sound <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think we did i'm pretty sure do you think it's possible i wasn't paying attention <laughs> but yes we've done 64 issues in 15 years. Yep. Uh, yeah, you know, 14 years. That's years. a pretty good going, because they're big undertakings. They are big undertakings, and a certain John the Rocket Coxon has done three with us? Yes. Uh, two Star Wars, one The Matrix. The Matrix. I'm smart. You um, are smart. Yes, but it's, yeah, no, it, if you haven't read Journey Planet, uh, there is guaranteed at least one that you will enjoy. That is true. That is, yep. that is absolutely fair. Yes. Um, and the most, one of the recent ones on like Filipino culture and stuff, right? Yeah, Filipino alamat, which is sort of the overall term for urban legend, myth, uh, tradition, all put into sort of one overarching concept. And Gene Martin was the co-editor. And uh, we had, I think every contributor, except for James and me, were Filipino or Filipina. The stories we got were fantastic. The art is phenomenal. I got to play with Dolly 2, my favorite AI generator. Uh, it's just, it's one of those, it, when we finished it, we don't always print issues. And I decided we're gonna print this issue because I found a place that would do it inexpensively in color. <laughs> hey, that's good. I gotta print my, uh, I gotta print my um, Woof and Alison's going to charge me bare dollar. I'm not. But how many copies are you planning to print? You know, you know it's black and, you know I printed black and white, right? Oh. I did tell you. I got beautiful colour images, you readers. You give the PDF. Mine's also going to have a load of beautiful colour images. Um, you could also run to the FedEx and do the printing there, but it's a little expensive. I'm not running anywhere, Chris. <laughs> I mean, but there's a reason why I printed black and white, so that we can do printing, but that, that if people want to look amazing, they're going to have to go and Yeah, I just sneak away to program ops. Do they have color printer? No chance. Ugh. No, there is not a single color. They don't Liz, even have a... I blame you for this. Most people don't have printers. Damn you, Liz. Um, the weird thing is, had when I did the Fancy Lounge here last time, I did have a color printer. That was actually, they gave me a color printer. And... Every every division at one point or another came and printed something on our our printer. Yeah, I can see that. I could have generated a color printer probably if I'd been better at my job. But no, that means you're the best at your job. I didn't really want to. I, I mean, I, I kind of wanted to to do it. Yeah, and honestly, a black and white printer is it's worth for it's, everything. It's. it's Reflecting the primacy of the text. The immutable object of Woof will be I'm more likely the PDF version, which will be in full color. Yeah. So I would, I would definitely send your, your PDF in full color. Yeah. We're not all librarians. Well, I am. But You're not a boss. I'm an archivist, technically. Ah. You didn't know this. That's the guy from the end of the second Matrix movie. Yes, which I've never seen. He's a big seen. Uh, Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that well, makes some sense. It really depends on your point of view. <laughs> he is very good at saying ergo. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a skill. I know you said ergo, but I heard ergot. And I'm thinking, 
wheat rust is one of my favorite elements. I want you to say niche again. Niche? You mean niche? I mean niche. No, niche. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a niche interest. Niche. We're, a niche, we're a niche podcast. We are a niche podcast. See, told you. I mean, and to that I say, Chris, touche. <laughs> fire, fire. <laughs> uh, but uh, we're a niche podcast. Oh, a niche. Well, that's how uh, when we went to get pancakes from the Cuban place. Obviously, the Spanish for pancake is pancake. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's real. That, that's like genuine. That's how. Is that actually? Yeah, because it's like a loan Spanish word. For pancake. Yeah, it's a loan word, but obviously they pronounce it like the Spanish, Spanish way of doing it. So pancake. Oh, and, and see, I've around my my grandparents' house. It's uh, well, it's either pancakes because half the kids don't speak Spanish, uh, or it was. Uh, oh, I know it translated as pan flat, because uh, pan, of course, yeah. bread. And flat, of course, uh, a description of a thing that is not flat. Yes. <laughs> Espana uh, this morning had tres leches pancakes, which were amazing. Really? Tres they were so good. She's doing a little dance. Where did you have the tres leches pancakes? Cafecito. Is that the same, is that the same Cuban? Yeah. I gotta go good. there. How far? Ten blocks north, maybe? Like, so you cross the, not the, you cross the bridge to the left of the hotel and then you walk until you get to a church. And so it's right. lift distance, not Uber distance. It's, it's 10 Garcia I'm miles. I'm like, can I catch a bus? <laughs> it's 38 Garcia miles. Yes. So on my TAF trip, Garcia said we were going to go get breakfast. And he said it was about a mile away. And he pulled out of the hotel, turned right, and then went, it's that. And then immediately turned right again on the next block. And we definitely could have walked. But you were like, you genuinely thought it was a mile away, and that's why a Garcia mile is a block. Because it's, it's Gar 64 Garcia miles, one mile for every journey planet. Yes. Ooh. Which, by the way, 64, 64 issues is a long run for an interplanet Janet fanzine. I might go to the Fanish Inquisition later. Always, because I want to know if the LA bid still exists. I believe so. I hope so. Because um, I want to go to LA. Yes. I like that. And they have a space shuttle and a Star Wars. They're the only. On the train. Weirdly, two of the space shuttles also have Star Wars. That's true. Yeah. Washington, D.C. is the odd one out. But it's also the worst space shuttle. They'll go to that one. No, that's the best spatial. Incorrect. Wait, that, that's not Enterprise. No, Enterprise New York. Is New York, okay. Yeah. So Enterprise New York, Endeavor is LA? Yeah, and okay. Discovery is in Washington, but they've just plonked it in the middle of a massive garage. So like, Oh, at the... Okay, calling it a massive garage. It's a massive garage. It is no. so lazily displayed. It is a freaking... So, What's this? as a museum nerd, <laughs> the technique they're using in that is called visible storage. Well, I think you actually go to yeah. hospitality and, and the idea well. is to make visible... Because museums... We're recording. I don't know if you know. <laughs> museums are unable to show more than a percentage of their collection. Yeah. What they chose to do was to show their high value, if we don't show this, we can't be a museum things. 
as a, I guess, a really a mandate to be able to see the things. Yeah. So instead of having to worry, oh, is it going to be on display at this time? You always know it's there. Now, their techniques aren't the best, but the idea of virtual, of visible storage is, you know, it's fundamental. Fundamental. Yeah. But the one at Kennedy is displayed suspended as if it's like in mid-flight. And the one in LA is suspended on the full launch stack. And the one in Washington is in a garage. But it's a really nice garage. Oh, it's a great garage. It's and a... they had great fridge moments. Oh, okay. Really good NASA fridge moments. Which garage is this? The Edvar Hazy Center near mm. Washington Dulles. Yeah, near Dulles. Yeah, yeah. No, wait. And is it Dulles it... or is it national? And what is it? A museum. It's yeah. the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum's, like, it is... other display. Oh, yeah. it's like their shed. It's like their, um... It's their yeah. like, Well, like the Imperial War Museum at Duxford. Exactly. Yeah? It's not as imaginatively laid out as the Imperial War Museum at Duxford. Mm -hmm. The Imperial War Museum at Duxford is a shed full of planes, John. It's several sheds full of planes, and yes. they had to decide which sheds had which planes. That has not happened. That's the one that the Smithsonian operates. Okay, fair. Yeah, and like, because you can go from the SR-71 Blackbird over to the, uh, they moved some of the, like, super old, like, late 19th century stuff over there, too. They have a lot of really cool planes. Like, yeah, I, a bunch. Yeah. And uh, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, like, the, the, the part of it that's in Washington mm -hmm. is also great. I so, really liked that museum when I went, but yes. you will not be surprised to learn it was a very, very long time ago, so it's probably changed a bit since then. So the last time I was there was when I worked at the Smithsonian. Ooh, it was nice. 93. I was at one of the art museums. And I've been behind the scenes at all the things. I did not get to go into the Spirit of St. Louis and root around in the uh, glove box. Boom. But I know, I should have. But I did. So if you have a badge at the Smithsonian, you can get into literally anywhere. It will open almost every door. And I've done this many times. Yeah. And so one night, me and a bunch of my hoodlum friends who were all interns went and we went into the National Museum of American History and there was things like Fonzie's jacket are on display and such. We found a staunch of 1940s clothing. Um, one of which was this amazing jacket that fit me perfectly. It had shoulder pads. It was great. It was an SS jacket. Oh, no. And I didn't find it until later. Oh, no. Are you the baddies? <laughs> yes, yes. Chris is, is the baddies. But uh, no, I've been... Uh, we also found... Uh, two of us had our part Native American. And so <laughs> we went and we found the bones of our people <laughs> in the back. That's like sitting around. And one of which said, waiting to be repatriated. And I'll guarantee you, they're still waiting to be repatriated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. These things happen. I need but, to go. I, need, I haven't seen the Enterprise yet. I do need to go to New York. I have, that's the that's the only one I've seen. The other three, I have seen Enterprise when it was still in service, and when they were sending Endeavor, I saw it fly over Moffett Field on the seven forty seven. Uh, those are the oh, and I saw Columbia once on the path, uh, but those are the only ones.
The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.